Our scripture this morning is Hebrews 3, verses 14 through 4, verse 11. The Sabbath and law. We conclude our studies this morning in the Sabbath law and begin next week our study of the Fifth Commandment, Hebrews 3.14 through 4.11. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limited a certain day, saying in David, The day after so long a time, as it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, or here Joshua, because Jesus and Joshua are the same name, if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. In these words, St. Paul sums up some central aspects of the meaning of the doctrine of the Sabbath. He declares that at the beginning, God, having created heaven and earth, rested on the seventh day. That seventh day had no evening to it. St. Augustine spoke of the Sabbath of God as the goal of history, as the great Sabbath which hath no evening. 
that Sabbath, God's rest, God's victory, God's triumph is the goal of history. And God separated from the beginning certain men unto himself to enter into that rest. Man had departed from that rest in the fall. The purpose of history, therefore, was to recall man, to reestablish man in God's rest, in God's victory. A people then were separated unto himself for that purpose. They were called out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, to be made partakers of that rest. But because they did not believe, Many of them died in the wilderness in their unbelief. So we see that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. Moreover, those who did enter in did not enter in to the fullness of rest. In other words, the Sabbath was not fulfilled in the promised land, although it was a partial fulfillment. For Jesus, because Jesus and Joshua are the same names. Jesus is the translation of it through the Greek, Joshua through the Hebrew. If Joshua had been able to give them true and full rest by their entrance into the promised land, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. The fullness, the fulfillment is yet to come. Now this interpretation of the Sabbath is not merely that of St. Paul. It is the interpretation of the whole of Scripture. It is the interpretation that also the Old Testament scribes and the rabbis fully knew. They declared that the Sabbath was a type of God's victory in time and of the world to come. That in the Sabbath the idea of creation is realized in redemption, in a redeemed society, and finally in all its fullness, in the new creation. This has been the interpretation throughout the ages. As one modern scholar has summed up the meaning of the Sabbath, man's Sabbath rest begins when he enters into God's rest, as that was the goal of the creative work. So to the people of God, this rest is the goal of their life of works. In terms of this, therefore, the meaning of the Sabbath, as St. Paul declares it and all of Scripture witnesses to it, We must note, first of all, that the Sabbath has always had reference to the future. As we pointed out last week, its pattern is in the past, the Sabbath of creation. It is a present rest based on past events with a future reference and fulfillment. But we must, having said all of this, say that the future is always the keynote to the Sabbath. The fact that we observe the Sabbath today 
means that we are a people whose sights are geared to the future. We believe in victory. We believe that God's law order shall prevail. We believe that history is geared to triumph, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So that those who observe the Sabbath are the people who are geared to the future. Even the subversives know this. A century ago, when alien subversive forces began to work in this country, they realized that the key to capturing the United States was to capture the churches, the people of the Sabbath. And so they began then their infiltration of the churches, beginning with the seminaries, an infiltration which has reached its triumph today. They did this because they recognized that here there was a land and a people geared to the future, a biblically oriented future. And it could not be weaned away from this unless they captured the Sabbath and geared it to their purposes. The biblical Sabbath thus is future-oriented in terms of God and his plan. Second, as we saw a few weeks ago, the law of the Sabbath requires providence, that is, a provident people, a people that thinks of tomorrow, that plans for it, a thrifty people. The biblical law, which was a part of the Sabbath, required short-term deaths only, six years as the maximum period for death. Each century had 16 full years of Sabbath, counting the two jubilee years. And a man had to be able to produce well so that he could live without an income during those Sabbath years. This created a society totally different from the kind of society we have now. Our society today is debt-oriented. We may talk about large-scale planning, but all of the planning involves debt. And so it is that a very sizable percentage of the national budget is always given, not to the future, but to the past. We burn up the future and we have to pay those past debts. And any examination of the national budget indicates that in spite of all the large-scale talk about planning the future, the budget is geared to paying past debts. The law of the Sabbath required providence. Instead of a consumption-oriented society as we have today that is continually burning up all that people have produced, 
burning up inherited wealth, burning up resources. Biblical society was production-centered and rest-conscious. Now, these are aspects that make a world of difference. The Sabbath made society geared to the future, geared to production, geared to rest. This makes an enormous difference in any culture. Third, the law of the Sabbath created a society best oriented to give rest. A simple illustration will suffice. About a century and a half ago, the railroads came into being. Now, a good deal of our contemporary histories as they deal with the rise of industrialism are written by people who are out to make a case against capitalism. And as they deal with the mills, for example, in England, they falsify the picture. But one point, we must give them credit. The railroads do present an ugly picture. For some reason or other, railroading from the beginning was in the hands of men who were thoroughly reprobate. An examination of American railroad history gives us an ugly picture of manipulation of the government by these huge railroad tycoons. Their tremendous wealth, the savagery with which they dealt with people. California, of course, has a long history of this kind of thing with regard to the Central Valley and what the railroads did is they defrauded people of land, sold to them under uncertain titles. Thus it was that the railroads, from the beginning, began to set a working day that was 12 hours and 7 days a week without any days off from one end of the year to the other. These are the ugly facts of railroading in America. And this continued until not too many years ago, within the lifetime of some of us. And yet, here is the interesting thing. These old railroaders here in the United States who work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, had a greater capacity for rest than men today on a 40-hour week. And when we look back at some of the life stories of some of the very simple railroaders, working men, and we find that they could go home and indulge in activities and keep up an active life in a way that today men cannot do. It causes us to marvel. They obviously had a capacity for rest. What was the answer? Even though they were working under a reprobate system, 
they still lived and were surrounded by a society that was Sabbath-oriented. Fifty years ago and a hundred years ago and forty-five years ago, when these conditions were still true of railroaders all around them, the rest of America was still Sabbath-conscious. It was still a society that had a capacity for rest. And so even these men who worked 12 hours a day had the ability to rest that is lacking today when stress-induced diseases, ulcers, heart conditions, and the like are skyrocketing. And among men who work short hours, in other words, a Sabbath-oriented society was able to convey something even to those who were being oppressed. The older society had enough Christianity to give it order, rest, and law. And when a man lived in an ordered society, in a law-abiding society, he can work long hours and still have rest. A fourth aspect of the Sabbath is this, its relationship to law. All law has reference to the future. When we began our studies in biblical law, we pointed out that all law is a plan for the future. When you pass a law, you are passing a plan. You are saying you are going to legislate out of existence a certain class of people, murderers, thieves, and the like. You're going to try to suppress a particular form of social activity as illicit, and you are going to try to wipe out a certain class of people as socially undesirable. This is the whole function of law. Law is a plan for the future. Sabbath law is a plan for the world's tomorrow, a cancel plan. What does the Sabbath law tell us? It tells us very plainly, and the law spells it out, that it is to be the abolition of evil or the suppression thereof. But man is to have rest in society. Every man in his own house and under his own tree, at peace, because evil has been suppressed, put down, kept under, so that a man can walk without fear, in security, because God's law order prevails. It is to be also, as the law stated, and we read it on an earlier morning, a plan for the suppression of poverty. The Sabbath laws require, as we have seen earlier, providence. God spells out the fact that if a people walk in terms of my law and keep my Sabbath, there shall be no poor among you. 
So the Sabbath law declares that God's plan for the future through his law is the abolition or suppression of evil and the abolition of poverty and also of death. It is moreover to provide man, as we have seen, with rest. And finally, with a recreation of the whole creation. The Sabbath law, therefore, in capsule form, is a, de- a, de- a declaration of the direction of the whole law. It declares what the nature of that future is towards which biblical faith is working and for which biblical law has been given. Thus, while Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, declares that the old formalisms of the Hebrew Sabbath are ended, the essence of the law is in force and is basic to the whole of biblical thinking. Now, as we turn away from the biblical Sabbath to non-Christian thinking, we find that non-Christian thinking, too, tries to gear itself to the future. But when non-Christian thinking tries to deal with the future, it carries a double penalty. First of all, it is past bound. Past bound. Perhaps nothing states this more clearly than the Civil Rights Revolution. The Civil Rights Revolution supposedly gives us a program for the future of our society. But listen sometime to these Civil Rights Revolutionists. Apart from a plan to destroy, what do they offer? All they talk about, basically, is what they have suffered in the past. Their basic thrust is with real or imagined evils in the past. I've read a number of the books written by the civil rights agitators. And they are so past bound that what they may have suffered, real or imagined, last year and ten years ago and twenty years ago is not enough. They dredge up everything that they imagine their ancestors have suffered for the past few hundred years. And for some of them, this is not enough. They dig into the Bible and go back ages to pre-Christian times, to the Mosaic Law, and try to find fancied evils against the black there. They're past-bound. All they can think about is the past. And having this past-bound characteristic, they turn on the present with hatred, and their only plan is to destroy it. They have no real plan for the future, except to level. And then, supposedly, paradise will appear. This is true also of many labor men. 
I cited earlier the 12-hour day of the railroaders. Now, you can talk to some union men who have had only good wages and good hours all their lives, and yet they will dredge up things like this that have no relationship to the present scene. Certainly it was terrible that the railroaders worked that way. But certainly it is terrible the way the railroaders work now, is it not? The vast amount of feather bedding, the fact that some of them can put in two and three hours and collect a day's wages, or the bricklayers who can, when they work normally, put up a couple of thousand bricks without any trouble in a day, eight-hour day, but in some areas have limited by law the amount of bricks they can lay to 600 so they don't have to carry a lunch with them when they go to work. If they lay more than that, it's overtime. And yet, to talk to any labor organizer, all you get is the story of ancient evils. They are past bound. Therefore, they cannot cope realistically with the present. When I was among the American Indians for eight and a half years, this was the same thing you found among Indian agitators. All they could think about was all the evils they had suffered at the hands of the white man. How once they owned the whole land and now they only had a reservation and so on and so forth. And I've seen them time and again with their eyes flashing, go on by the hour in this vein. I recall once when one of our Christian Indians spoke up and said, I remember that rich grandfather of yours who owned all of America. He ran around all winter shivering with nothing but a loincloth on, and very glad if he caught a rabbit to feed himself and the whole family. But it didn't make any difference. That Indian who was ranting about the past was standing there in good warm clothing and he had a car parked at the curb. But he couldn't live in the present because he was past bound. And this is the way of the non-Christian. He talks about planning for the future. But he is so past bound that as he faces the present and the future, his program is only destruction. Second, as the non-Christian faces the future, his thinking is utopian. He builds a dream world. He cannot face reality. Lewis Mumford, who cannot be accused of being either a Christian or a conservative. In his book, The Story of Utopias, declared, and I quote, Each utopia is a closed society for the prevention of human growth. Unquote. 
And he goes on to say that every plan and program man has devised, the utopian program for tomorrow, reduces man to an economic animal and sees man in terms of externals only. It forgets that he has a soul, a spirit. It makes him a cog and some kind of machine, which is your future utopia. And as a result, the non-Christian, because his thinking about the future is utopian, when he is able to try to bring his future about, only creates chaos and destruction. He tries to force man into an impossible mold, and the result is catastrophe. But for us, there remaineth, therefore, a rest, a Sabbath, to the people of God. God's love provides a program, a plan for the future in terms of which today we can rest, knowing that he shall bring it to pass, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And there shall be, at the end of time, a new creation. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the glory of Thy Word. And we thank Thee that today we can rest in Thy Sabbath, in Thy plan, knowing that we have an assured future in Jesus Christ, a glorious rest, a glorious law order. We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast called us to be citizens of thy kingdom. And we pray that day by day we may move in this glorious certainty and in victorious faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. I've never seen that statement that John Calvin never took a day off in his life. So I couldn't comment on it. All I could say is that certainly on the Sabbath he was always busy in Geneva lecturing and preaching, and that during the week he was regularly lecturing to vast numbers of persons, students, scholars who came from all over. But John Calvin did have the capacity to rest, and I'm sure that even with all his activity, each Sunday, it was still a day of rest for him. 
because he knew how to rest in the Lord. Yes. Well, the answer is one that you can yourself solve best. Because if you want to prepare the food the day before and rest, very well. Well, in the Old Testament, the food was prepared the day before, and it was made completely a day of rest. That strict formalism did go out in the New Testament, but it was not ruled out of court. That is, it is still certainly a valid thing to do. So if you want to rest, you can prepare the food the day before. But the real rest of a woman is to be under the authority of a man who provides her with security, with a future, with godly authority, even as the true rest of a man is to be in Christ and to be fulfilling his calling in terms of the Lord. Yes. We are no longer geared to having a Sabbath year regularly every seventh year, but the principle still remains valid. The land needs a rest. We are mining the soil without replenishing it. And therefore, a Sabbath to the land, a rest to the land, is necessary. Now, in some parts of our country, they have learned the principle of following the land. Sometimes it's just uh, for a season or two seasons of the year. In some places, by rotation, they allow it to lie fallow a year. And this has proven to be an excellent plan for those who have done it. But the endless use of the soil without fallowing, without a Sabbath, is destructive of the soil. I remarked a few weeks ago that the Sahara was once rich cattle and farmland and orchard country. And portions of it, as late as the days of the Carthaginian Empire, were still very rich and fertile. The rainfall was about that of many portions of the Midwest. But through continuous use and exploitation, it was destroyed and reverted to bare rock in some areas and drifting sand in other areas. They stripped the hills and the mountains of trees. They overgrazed. They destroyed the soil. There are portions now of France where the same thing has happened. And it's an interesting reason why. In the old days... The monarchy kept certain areas of France as forest reserves. They made it also a hunting reserve for themselves. 
they kept it as a reserve because they knew the value of keeping such an area as a reserve. And as a result, those areas were uncut, they were rich in timber, rich in brush and growth, wild animals, and there was a continual uh, seepage out of them of groundwater to the valleys and areas below, as well as the rainwater carrying down a tremendous amount of decayed matter which restored the soil in the areas below. Well, the French Revolution was so hostile to everything the monarchy did that it embarked on a systematic program of destruction. We don't realize how radical it was. Uh, the greatest composer of the French in the pre-revolutionary period is now unknown except for two short pieces that have survived. And the forests were cut down because they represented royal law. So that France has been progressively seeing in many areas a rapid deterioration of the soil. And some areas are totally unproductive. Now, this of course happened in Italy and South Italy has never recovered and it's an area now that is ridden with plague, uh, with uh, uh, disease and infections, malaria and the like, where the soil is depleted, and this is true of Sicily also, and the people have gone downhill. And yet once the richest, most productive part of Italy was Sicily and the kingdom of the two Naples. This was the area that the Byzantines and the Greeks earlier had all wanted to, uh, to possess because of its fabulous wealth, the richness of the soil. But it's all been depleted because it's been mined steadily. And we're seeing this here in our country now. I've called attention to this fact before, and uh, it's worth stating again. Not too many years ago, when I was a boy in the Central Valley, the idea of sprays was unknown and unnecessary because the ground was still so rich it produced, and the fruit, the trees were healthy, and they were disease-resistant. Today, the peaches and other fruits are sprayed seven times with the deadly paraffin so that the field has to be posted for it's 24 or 48 hours. If a bird flies over it in that time, it drops dead. If the farmer, when spraying, uses any his bare hands, touch the empty can of Paratheon, he dies. Seven times. And the grapes, twice. And every year or two, it gets worse. Why? Because the soil has been mined. It needs a Sabbath. The principle is a very valid one. Some soil scientists have pointed out the importance of it, but fallowing, as it is called nowadays, is only practiced in limited areas in the country. Yes.
that's true, some of the French peasants uh, have begun to reestablish this. Uh, in many areas, however, the damage has not been undone. There has been a program towards that end. Now, one country that has suffered very badly in this area is Mexico. In Mexico, you remember, in the 20s, there was the expropriation of land. It was taken from the wealthy landowners and given to the peons. This was a big, noble gesture. But what has happened? The total agricultural production of, of uh, Mexico has been dropping steadily because the peons have cut down all the trees for firewood. They have steadily overworked the soil. So Mexico is facing an increasing population and a decreasing productive ability and a decreasing water supply. And of course, Mexico City is an excellent example of what's happening when the water table drops because the very ground is beginning to sink there. That's very true. China is an example of this kind of massive destruction. And China's population in the 20th century has increased and its productive ability has suffered because of its abuse of the soil. The one area in the world that has been uh, relatively free of this has been Japan. The Japanese have been excellent in their use of the soil, but since World War II, they too have been uh, following some modern practices. Well, our time is... Yes, one more question before I share a couple of things with you. <clears throat> child is always responsible. A very small baby has enough intelligence. Uh, well, there is no difference in the intelligence of a one-day-old baby and the same child at 10, 20, 50, 100. The only difference is experience gives that intelligence more to work with. The intelligence is there. And any parent knows what uh, a child can do to work a parent. A baby in a high chair that can't walk yet can uh, play games with a parent and dropping a spoon four or five times before you catch on as you automatically pick it up that uh, a game is being played with you. The child is responsible very early. And the child must be taught because the child is by nature a sinner. The child is thinking primarily of itself. It is egocentric. So 
so the child does need training. Well, there are a couple of things here that uh, I encountered this week that I think are of interest. This is from a book published fairly early or towards the middle of World War II. Richard E. Lauterbach, These Are the Russians. And I thought the concluding paragraph was interesting because it was simply a quotation from Wendell Wilkie, which, as the author makes clear, summed up the American attitude. This will explain why our government under any administration has been the way it has been. This is what Wilkie said, and I quote, I tell you that if a man is not deep in his belly in favor of closest possible relations with Britain and Russia, then it does not matter what else he is. Such a man will be anti-labor even if he praises labor 24 hours a day. He will be anti-labor because he is working for a constricted America, a less prosperous America. For the very same reason, the very same man will also be anti-business in the deepest sense even though he may consider himself a servant of business, even though he falls on his knees before business. He will be anti-business because he will be working for a smaller America, a less important America. This is the touchstone to a man's entire position in politics today. Only occasionally does it happen that one issue arises which is so controlling that every other issue is subsidiary to it, and this is it. But it is not enough for a man merely to repeat the right words about world collaboration. He has to be on fire with it. He has to feel it in his belly that this is the door which will open outward to an expansion of American activity and prosperity. You cannot be wrong on this issue and be right on any other, unquote. Then, finally, just a few sentences from the Indicator Digest for October 22, 1968. It's a long article, but the gist of it is this. Congressman James A. McClure, a Republican of Idaho, issued a release October 9, 1968 to the press, which never got to the press. And it was this. Representative James A. McClure today accused the Treasury Department of manipulating the silver market and raised the possibility of a congressional investigation of the government's silver program. The department still thinks it can control the price of gold by depressing the price of silver. Private citizens would be jailed for doing the same thing. Unless silver policy is sharply reversed, it may be necessary for Congress to use its investigative powers to bring the whole sorry mess into public view, McClure stated. But as Indicator Digest points out, that <clears throat> this which should have hit the front pages and certainly every financial page never got into the press. The Wall Street Journal did not carry it. Then... On Friday, October the 11th, there was another release by McClure which stated that because of the election, it was apparent that Congress was not going to investigate. Again, this did not get into the papers. Then another very important item it points out 
did not get into the papers, Sunshine Mining, the nation's largest silver producer, announced it would stockpile its silver concentrates at the American smelting refinery, withholding all newly mined silver from the market until higher prices are obtainable. They comment, we have not seen any mention of this on the Dow Jones Newswires as yet. At the same time, Director Harry Magnuson of Hecla told his hometown newspaper, the longer the silver price is artificially depressed and the more the market is manipulated, the more violent the price rise will be when the market is ultimately freed of all treasury influence. This is the reality of the scene, and the sad fact is that people move too often on in terms of news rather than on principle. And Franz Pick, the world's greatest financial expert, said a while back during another crisis when people were concerned as to what was going to happen, he said, pay no attention to the orchestrated press. Act on your principles and stand on your principles. And that certainly is true. But in the last week, the sacks of silver coins have fluctuated widely. They dropped and rose and dropped day after day, sometimes $20, $30 variation from day to day, because so many little people in terms of the news were selling. The interesting part is, every time it dropped because these little people were selling, very large-scale buyers were moving in to pick them up, which is tragic. It should have been the other way around. Well, with that, we are adjourned.